This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane, and it is a great pleasure to be presenting this show to you again this week. And a massive thank you to those of you out there who have subscribed to the station in the last week. I know that some of you are still doing it, and there's a few who haven't done it yet. You can still do it up until the 28th of September, 5 p.m., and be in the running for all the prizes. So if you've got a few spare bits of change lying around and you want to subscribe and support Triple R, you can still do that. Just get online and do it via the web, and we would be very, very grateful if you did. Now, enough of that. We're going to get into the show. In the studio of me is Dr. Ewan. Good morning. Good morning. You're looking well, fella. I'm feeling well. Sun's out. Sun is out. It's all good. Yeah, I've got this bloody herpetic infection in my eye, <laughs> and, and so sun's out, not fun. <laughs> Everything's bright. Shock. <laughs> anyway, so uh, just to, you know, for our listeners out there, if something goes wrong here, it's just because I can't see the buttons. <laughs> it's radio. I didn't just, think I'd need it. And just to paint the picture for the listeners, he does have one rather googly eye. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> That's the voice of Dr. Jen. Good morning. Good morning, Josh. And you know I'm always, I'm always so complimentary. That's my job here. <laughs> Speaking of complimentary, Chris KP. <laughs> you know, if, if, you, if you've got a, a, a troublesome eye, it occurs to me that this is the absolute absolute best opportunity for you to just get an eye patch. Arr, Dr. Shane here, behind the desk, get triple R. Triple R! It's perfect. <laughs> Sells itself. Do you know the funny thing is, uh, one of the girls who works with me at work, uh, hello Joe, if you're listening, and my wife both came to the same conclusion uh, a few weeks back when I had the same problem, pretty much on the same day. Yeah, I love, I was it. Like, love these people. You know, the sympathy. All they want to do is patch me, give me a patch. And I said, do I get a parrot? Because I love parrots. If that's what it takes, man, get a parrot. (laughs) Anyway, we've got uh, three absolutely uh, fantastic guests coming your way today, folks. But before we do that, we're going to get into some science news, and it's been a pretty big week. Dr. Ewan, what's been floating your nanoboat? I was pretty excited about about some nanoscience or nanotechnology, and also which is coupled with biomimicry, which is using, I guess, things that we see in nature, but for purposes for ourselves, essentially. And so... Medicine, you know, delivering medicine to the right part of the body is always a challenge, um, particularly when you're trying to get to really small spaces or even deliver it to the cellular level as well. So there's been this idea for a long time about getting really tiny devices that you can essentially command and drive around people's bodies to mm. deliver to the right place. And I, I, I remember that Raquel Welsh film. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Hello. Fantastic voyage. It was fantastic. Shane, don't go there. What was it called? Um, something deterrent. Forces, um, combined miniaturized deterrent forces. There, there was C- CDMF or something, and it was a great film. We watched different films, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Might have been because it was before you were born. <laughs> anyway, so it looks like they've actually managed to make one of these devices, a little nano fish. Um, and this thing is really tiny, so it's about a hundred times smaller than a grain of sand. So get your oh. head around that. And it's made up of gold and nickel, um, so gold head and a, a gold tail and nickel plates in between that are held together by silver hinges. And what they do is they actually um, move this around using an oscillating magnetic field. And so you can actually therefore command where this little fish goes. And at this, I mean, this thing is tiny. So, and it's, it's quite a breakthrough that they believe that they'll be able to actually deliver this to, you know, parts of the body and deliver medication. Mm. Now, there's of course questions that come up as well, what do you do when it's actually finished its job? Yep. So that's the next 
next um, stage in the research is to actually um, work on one that's biodegradable. I love the fact that this also comes from the Journal of Small. I didn't know such a journal oh, existed. Oh, but how oh, cool no. is that? So nanotechnology in the Journal of Small. It's not small stuff. Like it's just the Journal of Small. <laughs> They're trying to keep it short. Right. Is that an acronym? Yeah. Must be. Surely. I'll look it up for you. For small... Yeah, the but, first but, word's small. But, you know, as, as a biology <laughs> geek, I think this is pretty cool because, yeah, they've essentially simulated the movement of a fish and it turns out to be mm. much more efficient than... The other one that they look at is um, basically like a little propeller which is modelled on bacteria and how they move around. But they've actually done yep. experiments to show that the movement of a fish is more efficient than how a bacteria moves. So that's mm. why they've gone for the fish design rather than the bacteria which kind of spins around with this little kind of mm. tail. Mm. Um, anyway, so that that's what got me pretty excited this week. Yeah, that's yeah. cool stuff, yeah. Nothing like uh, mimicking nature, <laughs> you're right. Exactly. Dr. Jen. Well, I want to talk flavours because, you know, we were all very young when we learnt that there was just a handful of basic flavours. So for everyone in the room, when we were young, there was only four basic flavours. There were salty, sweet, sour and bitter. And then seven years ago, they added umami to the mix, mm. which is that kind of savoury flavour that MSG is really famous for, oh, okay. <laughs> for mimicking. <clears throat> but researchers asked the question of wouldn't it be odd or, or isn't it odd if we don't have um, taste receptors for complex carbohydrates? Because you think every culture in the world basically has some form of complex carbohydrate that's pretty much a staple. So whether it's rice or pasta or bread. So, you know, why can't we taste it? And, and the suggestion is, well, we just haven't really looked because we know that hmm. complex carbohydrates get broken down into sugars and that happens quite early on in our digestion. So you have um, an enzyme in your saliva that breaks complex carbohydrates down to sugar and so, of course, we taste sugar. But, you know, maybe we could actually taste these complex mm. carbohydrates. So they gave a whole series of volunteers these solutions with complex carbohydrates in them to test if they could taste the flavour. And everyone said, yeah, yeah, too, right? We can taste it. It's starchy. So the Asian volunteers said it tastes like rice. The Caucasian mm. volunteers said it tastes like pasta or it tastes, tastes like bread. And so then the next step was to give these volunteers a compound which would block their capacity to taste sweet and see if they could still taste this starch. And they could. They totally said, yeah, yeah, that's starch. I can taste it. So it suggests that very early on in the taste process, before saliva starts breaking down these complex carbohydrates into sugars, we can absolutely taste them. So maybe next time you've kind of got this crazy craving for bread or pasta or whatever it is that you crave, you're craving that taste that they've kind of just called starchy, which isn't a very exciting name, but that's kind of what it is. Uh, do cravings, I, I had this vague understanding that cravings came from a buildup of bacteria in your stomach or, you know, in your intestine system that then said, I need more sugar, I need more sugar. And mm -hmm. so it wasn't actually related. Is it related to taste? I wasn't sure about that. Oh, I think it is. I think because, well, I think it's probably both. I think there's sort of mm. a physiological drive, but there is also just that thing of I feel like yeah, the taste of. You associate taste with whatever's inside, you know, the thing you yeah. want to eat. Yeah. So, so it'd yeah. be interesting if you get, you know, I feel like having the taste of pasta without any sauce. Yeah. Because that's, that's, that's it, right? That's, yeah. it's, it's, it's the absence of. It's almost like a taste of the absence of the yeah. things we normally have yeah. With, yeah. with rice. and That sounds truly horrid. It does, doesn't yeah, it? Yes. Pasta without yeah, sauce. You're yeah. Star starchy sounds better. Yeah. Yuck. The only, the only worst thing that than starchy is a name for this would be bland. Bland. Uh, well, I don't know. Yeah. Hot chips. They're not bland. Yeah. They're covered in salt. <laughs> yeah. I, I crave yeah. them all the time. They're pretty <laughs> starchy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I love the MSG part, though. I mean, back yeah. in the day, we didn't know that taste existed because no. people made sure we didn't know that it was a real taste. Seriously, I know. Yeah. Um, tasting something weird, and I think it's really bad for me. You're imagining it. There's only four <laughs> basic flavors, and that's not one of them. Yeah, you kids are nuts. Yes. Chris Gap, are you composed? Because uh, oh, it's your I'm, turn. He's yeah, always uh, composed. Look at him. I, I am prepared 
Weird. Um, so I wanted to tell you a story that um, that's been uh, what well, was published in uh, in PLOS Biology, but it came out of Brown University, among others. Basically, um, they did some very interesting work in in uh, neurology. What they've done is they put some people in in MRI machines and they played them a series of faces, showed them a series of faces, hundreds of them, and mm-hmm. they were simply asked to rate the face in terms of whether they felt good or bad about it. You know, positive, negative, where one is really bad, ten is really good, and five is something somewhat neutral. So there's no there's no rationale, there's no judgment. You just mm. tell us what you like and you don't like and off they go. While they're doing this, the, uh, the scientists are actually tracking the activity of their brain and they can therefore tell if you go, oh, I didn't like that face, didn't like that face, they can see what parts of your brain are lighting up. They can mm. see what pathways are doing this for you. If you say do like, do like, likewise. <coughs> First thing that they, they noted is that it looks like the like and dislike do come from the same part of the brain, more or less, which has been disputed for a long time. So that's the first thing. Then they were able to recognise what was good, what you thought was light, what was lighting up in your brain when something was good or bad, and then they can use that. So what they then did is they brought people back, they split them up into like types, brought them back, and showed them the faces that they thought were neutral. So hmm. here's a neutral face, followed by a completely meaningless image of a disc. <laughs> <laughs> and the instruction you're given with the disc is, using your brain, we would like you to make the disc larger. Now, of course, that's nuts, because <laughs> you can't do anything like that. But basically, all you do is you lie there and try to think about making it larger. And the researchers are looking at this, and they did nothing, unless the same part of your brain that was otherwise associated with positive faces lit up. So if in your attempts to try Ooh. and do this, that lit up, then they would make the disc grow. <gasps> so you, your brain would basically go, all right, I'm doing it. I'm making the disc larger with the power of my brain. <laughs> and they would do this several times over a period of weeks. I think they did this over and over again, which meant that you were actually reinforcing the neural pathways in your head in terms of, you know, your ability to think positively about stuff. Then they go back and show you all the faces you thought were neutral or not so good and all of a sudden, you start to think they might be okay after mm. all. Wow. They've actually changed the neural pathways in your head so you feel differently about stuff you're Just over a couple Geeky. of weeks. Yeah. Um, I think so, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, there, was, there was certainly repeat visits where you went back there and we were essentially trained in how yeah, to do yeah. this. So there's a whole other people at the moment somewhere in the US, presumably, <laughs> looking at donuts going, get bigger. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Get bigger. Yeah. I really hope they explain this real well because otherwise it could get very, very embarrassing. <laughs> or looking at other parts of their body. Um, oh, Shane, once again. Well, I'm just saying, you know, hands, muscles, whatever you want. Um, I was with you. Where are you, Dr. Jen? Somewhere else. Right where you yeah. are. <laughs> well, uh, this week was, uh, you know, the last uh, couple of weeks, actually, be being interesting in the space industry because we of course had the um the disaster of the dragon spacecraft mm. uh, exploding on the on the workbench as i put it um yet to take off in fact it wasn't even in the final countdown for launch so that was um very very sad for especially for people living in africa who were going to get free internet mm. um high-speed internet as a result of the facebook satellite which was built in israel which was on top of this thing which of course um i'm not sure if they found any of it but it was pretty well and truly destroyed however those old faithfuls at NASA had a bit more success. Um, they managed to launch this week the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft, which is pretty cool. Um, this is the one you may have heard is going to go out to an asteroid, grab a bit, and bring it back, which is mm-hmm. kind of cool. So there's this asteroid called, and you know, you got to love these names, um, 101955 Bennu. It's uh, basically about 500 metres wide. Uh, it goes around the sun about uh, every 1.2 years or so, and it's pretty close to Earth. And, uh, you know, basically they're going to send this craft up there, 
get really close to it, do a whole lot of studies, etc., etc., and then they're going to send down this extendable kind of arm, grab some stuff, and pull it back up to the craft, and then the next time the craft comes near Earth, which is going to be in, I think, 20... Uh, uh, when is it? 20... Oh, it's a little way off. It's going to jettison that part of the craft back to Earth and we'll get a little sample of the asteroid, cool. which is really cool. Now, the question, you know, who cares? Asteroid, right? Rock. But one of the good things about asteroids is they're, they're relatively unchanged from the early formation days of the solar system. So it gives us a really good idea of what's, you know, what was there when the solar system was first forming, which is kind of cool. And we can compare that to the Earth, the Moon, other, other bodies in the solar system we know quite well. So, um... Yeah. Oh, how, no. how is it going to be to grab it? Like, well, it's it's interesting. Totally Apparently, it's hard what it, rock. well, no, no, it's actually not as hard as you might imagine. So okay. there's a lot of loose material on the surface that's gravitationally mm. held to this oh, object okay. um, that's been hit by other objects over the years, <clears throat> and all it needs to really do, and this is the cool part, it doesn't need to kind of drill in or you know mm. etch a bit off. It basically just needs to disturb the surface. That muck, you know, comes up and it captures it. It's kind of like sort of, you know, you're at the bottom of the ocean yep. and you kind of run your hand across it and all the muck comes up, you grab a bag, quickly grab some and off you go. Mm. Um, you don't really mm. need to do anything so, else. So more, l- less deep impact and more landscape gardening. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. And, um, and, you know, I mean, we've had some, there's been some interesting stuff around this lately, um, especially with the, the comet, you know, recently and, and the Philae Lander, which they found yes. over the last couple of weeks, which is... It's kind of, behind you. Oh, I don't know if you guys saw the pictures of that, but like there's this, there's this vast plane of beautiful areas and this one kind of little almost like a cave looking structure if you were trying to land this thing in the worst possible place i reckon you'd you'd struggle to do it yeah but they managed to get it wedged into this sort of little socket question uh, yeah when, when they've so they've got their handful of dirt mm. um and if i'm underplaying this too much you know and then they come back around to earth in a while and they throw it back at earth yeah do they have to put it inside something so it doesn't burn up yeah glad wrap it will be in a sealed container that okay. will apparently um, drop down uh, in a capsule in the Utah desert. Nice. Now, that's well coordinated. They know exactly mm. where it's going to go. Uh, in 2023. Bad daddy go bushwalking in the Utah yeah. desert. <laughs> 2023. So they'll, okay. they'll locate it in 2024. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> I'm sure they'll know exactly where it is. Um, but it will give them a, a good idea. Now, you've got to remember, all this stuff is all part of these ongoing series of missions towards walking on Mars, many things that we need to do first, and being able to go and... I mean, if you think about these asteroid missions, they're interesting because if ever we want to do the Bruce Willis deal, um, we need to be able to get to them, you know, study them, do all this sort of stuff. And there was one that whizzed by Earth this week. Did you mm, see that? I saw that. Oh, yes. pretty yeah. close. Yep. Yeah. Pretty close. They didn't know about it until like I'm surprised a few hours Bruce before. didn't get the call up. Well... You and I discussed this on Facebook. <laughs> he's not cheap. No, he's not cheap. No, he's a, he's we can't man. afford him. <laughs> <laughs> Obama's no longer employing Bruce, so uh, you know, we, we, he's uh, spent money elsewhere. So, one hundred two point seven. Uh, you are listening to Three Triple R. In the studio with us now, we have Hannah McDougall, who's a PhD student in sports management out in the School of Management at La Trobe University. Hannah, welcome to the studio. Thank you very much for having me. Now, we met uh, during the week because you were in the three-minute thesis grand final out there at La Trobe, which I did a half-baked job of emceeing. Um, <laughs> I, I was sick, you know. 
Anyway, um, and you did, you did really well. Um, it was it was amazing though, just uh, seeing all the different um, presenters, all eight of you, all women. Congratulations, Latrobe, on getting such a high um, number of women into the grand final. I think that's uh, was is that normal out there? Have you seen that before? I think generally there is uh, more females than males competing, but I think that could maybe have even been a first in terms of yeah. uh, full female power for the final itself. Yeah. So it's pretty exciting to see and just world-class research that's going on out there. Yeah, I mean, my, my only advice to the guys out there is good luck because all the women doing it were pretty bloody good. So if you want to get into the <laughs> final, you have to work a bit harder. Now, let's talk about your work. Because um, you're a para-athlete and you're leading, you know, you were saying during the week you ride for the 500 kilometres. I had to check that there was a K in front of that. <laughs> I could, I'd probably ride, I'd ride four or 500 metres. <laughs> Dr. Ewan, you too? Yeah, yeah, about that. Not every week. <laughs> Not every week. <laughs> so, Maybe every second week every or something. Week. <laughs> so you're, 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 you're training for the World Championships for next year. I mean, what, what's required to do that? I mean, what do you need to be able to do? Yeah, well, it's it's pretty full on uh, being a full time athlete and then also studying a PhD as mm. well and working a little bit at the Victorian Institute of Sport. So in terms of we're talking about twenty to twenty five hours a week for training, yep. uh, probably about twenty of that is on the bike, uh, all around streets of Melbourne. So this morning I was up in the the Dandenongs going up the one in twenty and it was beautiful, glorious mm. morning. Mm. Uh, and then also a couple of gym sessions down the Victorian Institute of Sport, getting buff. You know, my biceps nearly didn't fit through the door this morning to be honest <laughs> uh, given that i'm a cyclist it totally makes sense i uh, and then also um a whole lot of pilates and ab work stretching physio massage nutrition all of that other kind of jazz that goes i gotta say it. if you um, if your biceps don't fit through the door you might be using the door incorrectly <laughs> <laughs> so your, your training program is almost identical to chris's yeah. <laughs> With the except, with the only, the only, well, all of it's different except for the massage part. I think you, you're on, to, you, you get oh, that. Yeah, five yeah. or six hundred kilometers of massage. A week. <laughs> now, you've been, in, in your PhD, you're sort of looking at sort of well-being of athletes. Cause this is something that we, sometimes when we hear about this, we hear about the real bad end of it. You know, so by the time an athlete's well-being comes up in the news, it's pretty bad. I, I, I mean, there must be a whole spectrum along there though, in terms of well-being. Most definitely. And I think, so in my three minute thesis, I used the analogy for too long. We've, we've used a red cape approach when treating athlete wellbeing. So we focused on what's going wrong. Mm-hmm. And in direct contrast to this, my PhD was using a green cape approach. So we focused on what's going right, building strengths, wellbeing, mental health, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we're slowly starting to see a shift within sport in terms of that focus on athlete health and welfare. Yep. I mean, you've got the AFL boys, you know, they're, no strangers now to sitting down and doing breath work, aka mindfulness. Right. Uh, you probably maybe wouldn't call it mindfulness. You just call it attention and focus training or core strength training for the brain, uh, whatever it may be. But yeah, it's it's taking off in sport at the moment. Mm. And uh, one of the things that I always wonder about this is how much of this is it a fad? I mean, we've we've heard some of these over the years, various things. You know, altitude training in some cases works; in other cases, it's nonsense for various, depending on how it's done. Um, when we talk about something like mindfulness training or focus training and so forth, I mean, do you look at the physiological changes? Can you can you map what's actually going on and say, hey, there's something legitimate here? Definitely. There's a lot of research behind the physiological changes, uh, particularly on the brain, but then also the body as a mm-hmm. result of all of this attention-focused training. I would say 
not in the sports space yet, but definitely in our clinical populations, there's oodles and oodles of research behind the, the physical changes that we're seeing as a result simply by people literally spending, you know, 10 to 20 minutes a day uh, for an eight-week period, and we're seeing results from that in terms of the structures mm. in the brain. I, I mean, what sort of changes do you see? I mean, that, that seems like a relatively small amount of time mm, you know, over, over a short period yeah. too yeah yeah so you've got things um so areas to do with uh, emotional regulation that have been changed over that period of time mm -hmm. there is a, a big difference between just that eight week kind of novice beginner and the serious meditators uh um and they hook them all up and the serious guys have a lot stronger aspects but you're seeing these changes in a short period of time so i think for athletes who are generally time poor and pretty busy to have uh, that science behind it. And that was one thing that I went into my PhD with in terms of we need evidence-based things to help these people improve their performance and well-being. Yeah. So the science is behind it, which is really exciting. What, um, what components of performance is this most likely or is it, is it targeting? Is it, is it about training? Is it about dealing with adversity? Is it, uh, is it about aspiration? Where does it kick in in, in the process? I think there's, it's so many different facets. I mean, personally, we only looked at uh, a couple of different areas of performance and there is a limitation within my research in that it was all self-reported. So the next stage would be to get that um, objective measures mm, within sure. it as well. Next PhD, perhaps. Well, um, you know, there's kind of walking meetings now and cycling meetings, yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, brilliant. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. I'm up for it. Uh, so we had improvements in agility, but I think when we look at that, those key skills of attention and focus and bringing that to performance, uh, connect literally physiologically connecting the mind and the body through that breath work, it just has kind of endless implications within performance itself, whether it be training, competition, uh, or or recovery as mm -hmm. well after competition too. And I think, I mean, the recovery one's the interesting one for me because whether you're talking about sports recovery or surgical recovery or, or anything else, I mean, presumably these things all overlap. I mean, there's a lot of work at the moment on using some of these techniques to get people back moving after serious um, you know, cancer surgeries and so forth. And, and all the researchers starting to say, well, hang on, we had some researchers just here over the last couple of weeks talking about the different physiological changes and the way in which people were responding when they were doing this sort of stuff. So it seems as though there's a, a strong link between between these things. Uh, um, in, t in terms of going back to sort of Chris KP's question, what sort of things would you expect to see with some of this activity? And what I want to know is, you've got Usain Bolt on one hand, you know, <laughs> does, he, does he really need to do a, a few kumbayas before he goes for his 100 metres? Does that help him? Or, or is it more, you know, for a, a long-distance runner? I mean, where, where, are, where are you seeing the benefit? Because I can imagine in different ways it might benefit them both, but in other ways it might be more targeted towards certain types of athletes. I mean, what's your expectation there, Anna? Most definitely, Shane. I mean, we're such early days for this research. I mm. think, uh, like, I was probably the first person to investigate it in a para-athlete wellbeing sense, and mm -hmm. I had athletes competing across all types of sports, so from your wheelchair basketball to your table tennis to your athletics to your swimming, so a whole lot of different sports across different events as well. Uh, one of the key things that we work on in the program is getting athletes to recognize that 
all of their thoughts aren't necessarily true. Right. So not buying into all of the crap that we tell ourselves that we're literally genetically programmed with. So in terms of our running away from dinosaurs phase of evolution, all of that negative hardware that we've got inbuilt in us. So learning how to distance ourselves from that hardware so that we can focus on our performance. Mm. So for me, that application is across the board uh, and extremely useful and kind of freeing in a sense for athletes to know that all of the the crap that's going on and and sometimes too the over excitement the over arousal that we face as athletes mm. we don't have to buy into it uh, so we're creating that choice point for athletes to um, am I going to get on this pathway in terms of I feel slow today I'm not you know I haven't done a proper warm-up I haven't done the training blah 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 uh, or Am I going to focus on right here, right now? Mm. What is it that I need to do? Mm. So for me, that's across the board. And certainly, I mean, you, you may remember on Wednesday when you guys were doing a competition, I gave you part of that speech before you started about adrenaline and what happens when people get nervous and so forth. And just I found an awareness of that, um, whether you're public speaking or you're in your, your case, you're an, you're an athlete, all of that gives you more information that you can use in terms of your prep, in terms of the way you go about events. And we don't normally pay much attention to that. It's something that I don't remember being the fine athlete that I am when I was younger. <laughs> I don't remember anyone ever... <laughs> Ewan's really laughing that up. Um, <clears throat> I don't remember anyone ever sort of saying, you know, these are things you need to think about as well before you run or, or, or whatever. It, it's, it seems as though it's just an unspoken area that we haven't really tackled in, in a serious way. Yeah. Definitely. And I think the more I learn about it, the more I'm kind of connecting the dots. But we kind of intuitively know this stuff as well. So, mm. you know, the best piece of uh, advice my coach ever gave me, I'm like, well, what do you think about when you race? And he was just like, Han, when I'm doing my pursuit, which is around the velodrome in the cycling uh, and 4Ks for him, his mantra is literally breathe, core, and then he counts down his laps. Right. So it's literally breathe, core, lap, breathe, core, lap. And that knowledge that was kind of contained in that simple piece mm. of advice was just gold. Yeah. Uh, so it's like you and his breathe, stay alive, breathe, stay alive. Breathing's important. <laughs> I think eating needs to go in there as well, yeah, to okay. be honest. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess along a similar question, I, I, I'm curious, and I'm sure this has been done, but have people gone retrospectively and looked at athletes who have been highly successful? Mm. So let, let's imagine a Michael Jordan, mm. a Carl Lewis, yeah, a Usain Bolt, you know, do these people have incredible routines that kind of distinguish them from someone else who may have physically may just be as capable, but they may be doing these things that you're talking about? Um, I don't know. Has that been done? I mean, it'd be very hard to do it in a controlled way because everybody's different, right? But I'm curious, yeah, do those people have something particular about them that, you know, that gives them that edge? I don't know. So... Brilliant second PhD coming up, I believe. Uh, the research, yeah, it's, it's quite new in this sporting space. So literally we're talking probably 2004, 2005 is when it started to come into sport. Mm. And we're now just seeing that kind of, uh, wave that's starting to happen within research. So you've probably given somebody some great ideas there. <laughs> it isn't quite out there yet. We only have research around, uh, characteristics of the successful Olympic mm. champions in terms of resiliency, uh, ability to cope, set goals, support networks, all of those really important characteristics. But in terms of using my 
mindfulness, attention training, not quite there yet. Mm. Hannah, it's great chatting to you about this. Good luck with the World Championships. I, I suspect you've probably got somewhere between here and the moon of training to go between now and then. So <laughs> good luck with that. I hope that doesn't sound too imposing. Um, congratulations also on making the grand final during the week at La Trobe on the three-minute thesis contest. And um, good luck with the work and finishing your PhD. Thanks very much, Shane. Cheers. Hannah McDougall is a PhD student in sports management at the School of Management at La Trobe University. Triple. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. In the studio with us now is Professor Wing Chu. He is from Information Technology in the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at Monash University. Good morning, Wing. How are you going? Very well. Thank you, Shane, and thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on. It's rare that we get aeronautical engineers and, and so forth in the studio, so it's a, it's a great delight for us. We, um, we we're fascinated by the fact that you, you've been looking at aircraft for quite a while. Let's talk about that first. What sort of um, things do you look at in terms of aircraft? Because, I mean, these are, these are highly complex pieces of equipment. A uh, lot, lot of things can go wrong. I mean, what, what specifically have you been looking at? Well, I've been working on the uh, structural health monitoring of aircraft structures for a while now, mm-hmm. and that also includes some, some maritime structures. Yeah. Um, well, really, the focus of our work is um, to develop inspection and monitoring st- strategies for uh, aircraft structures, um, for both metallic and composite structures, I must add. Okay. And our work, really, they are, they are funded by the Australian Research Council. Defense Science and Technology Group, mm-hmm. uh, you, you, the United States Air Force and the United States Navy. Yeah. So, so you take an airplane, and you know, I mean, my, my inspection would be, yep, nothing's fallen off. <laughs> Just kick the tires. <laughs> I mean, presumably they <laughs> kick the tires. I mean, presumably though, you, you need to look for structural flaws that aren't necessarily visible to yes. the human eye. So, yes. I mean, how do you go about that? Okay, now, um, really, the aircraft structures is comes fully intact mm-hmm. and it will have its own, for example, dynamic response to a certain excitation. So as the um, damage develops or defects starts developing as a result of usage, its dynamic response will change accordingly. Right. right. And we're trying to use that particular dynamic response to try and characterize the, um, uh, the amount of usage that the aircraft has um, under, uh, undergone and what kind of damage it has accumulated. Okay. So do you, do you have to vibrate parts of the plane? Is that, is that what you're talking about? You're actually looking at the resonances of the plane, so you, you're effectively vibrating it and then listening to how it, yes. how it responds. Yes, it's essentially, it, it, in a nutshell, yes, but there are, of course, the various uh, types of, you know, the frequency bandwidth is really quite big. Yeah. You have the, um, um, the low frequency, medium frequency, and then the ultrasonic mm. type inspection techniques. But uh, and, and, and how do you know, so you find a, a floor, I mean, how do you know that that floor is not just going to sit there and do nothing. How do you know that it's going to propagate or get worse? Are you able to tell? Yes, with uh, uh, regular inspection routines, okay. you will be able to determine the um, uh, well, ongoing development of the mm. particular flaw or defect. Yes. Yeah. Now, aircraft are interesting, but you've moved on. You've moved on to bones. Yes. <laughs> I, I love the aircraft part personally, but um, <laughs> you know, we all have bones. We need to we need to be able to inspect them. Uh, you're you're looking at the way in which bones heal after after Correct. damage. So yes. this same technology you've been using for aircraft, yes. you're now applying to yes. bones. Tell, tell us about that. Okay, uh, some years back, I was um, uh, approached by this orthopedic surgeon from the Alfred. Mm-hmm. Same as Matthias Ras. He's very well known, uh, both locally and internationally. Um, he came to me and he said that look, I've got this uh, fractured pelvis. It's a test specimen. He's been it's been fixated. 
And can you tell us how much load that particular fractured pelvis is going to take with the fixation? Okay. I, I, I told him, I, I'm going to do this for you on the condition that we don't break all your specimens <laughs> because yeah. I've got other interests in those specimens. That they're expensive. Yeah. I said, look, given my interest in structural health monitoring, is there a, a way that I could persuade you to allow us to put some sensors on the fixation to allow us to then determine the um, degree of healing of okay. a particular bone. And so these are inter- internal sensors to the body. So yes. o- on the on the actual wow. bone, well, the, the, we're talking about bone sense, uh, a, a bone specimen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So at that stage, we're still, we, you know, we're, we're looking at the, um, uh, the 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 signs and mm. trying to um, say that look. In the aircraft case, we have a fully intact structure, so we want yep. to mm. see how the damage develops. But here we have a structure which is broken. Yeah. So we want, and, and and we know that the structure will heal and can heal. So we want to be able to do the inverse problem. Yeah. To use what we know and what we understand of uh, structural uh, structural component and its and its response to then determine well, as things changes, can we actually use those um, knowledge that we have to 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 do a, a, a definitive and quantifiable assessment of the degree of healing. Hmm. And that's how it's all started. And, and that's working now? You can actually do that? Because I can imagine, you know, every patient is completely different. And depending on the, the type of break, their physiological conditions, whether they're diabetic or not, you know, the healing is different for everyone. So sure. you really, you know, the, the old, uh, stay off it for six weeks and then you're good to go for a run. That does, I mean, it just doesn't fly. You know, you've got to, you've got to monitor that. So you're able to do that now? Yes. Well, this is what, um, this is what the, um, uh, the outcome actually excited the, the orthopedic surgeon. Yeah. And his, 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 his statement back then was that, hey, you know, our, our assessment Procedures now, are, you know, is really basically based on uh, the clinic experience yeah. and really the opinion of the surgeon. But here we have potentially a something which is definitive and quantifiable. Mm. So, and he said, "Well, it is one thing to be able to say that the uh, the fracture has healed, and we are able to allow the person to, for example, take some load bearing exercise, yeah. walking yeah. to reduce muscle wastage, and he can actually see the potential in that." But then he also said that. Hey, this technology can potentially allow us also to make a statement as to whether there's any delay in healing. Mm-hmm. And if there was any delay, then they can potentially tell the patient not to walk. Yeah. Otherwise, he can, he or she can actually potentially refracture the, the region. Mm. Yeah. So I mentioned just linking back to the previous guest. I mean, imagine athletes would be incredibly interested in this because if you, if you're a football player, as example, and you break your leg, mm. you know, the team wants to know, are we going to get this person back in six weeks or eight weeks or 10 weeks? Mm. Yeah. But another thing I'm interested in too is can you use this as a predictive thing? Now, of course, we know that the more we use our bones, generally the stronger they are. So if you, you know, running and doing exercise, you get stronger bones, but there's other reasons why bones also become weakened. So can you also use this technology to look at someone and say, look, there's a good chance this part of the body might actually give away at some point because we can see some some problems here? Uh, yes, yes. Um, as you can well appreciate, this particular f- uh, work that we have, we have proposed and that we are doing is uh, relatively I- in its infancy stage. And But what is most encouraging is that uh, it has attracted um, funding from the U.S. Navy mm-hmm. and we're working towards a larger program of work. 
And that basically encompasses the kind of things that you're talking about. Mm. Yes. Maybe I should get some research ideas from you. <laughs> <laughs> Happens in the studio every yeah. now and then. Um, now, in terms of like the, the technology you're replacing here, though, I mean, we're, we're just talking about stock standard X-rays, essentially. I mean, for, for things like bone density and, and strength. I mean, that, that's just done with X-rays these days, right? I mean, there's there's yes. no other real way of doing it, is there? Well, um, I've been told by the surgeon that they use X-rays, yes, yep. and, and CT scans, and that's why those uh, kind of outcomes they are—they're uh, not definitive. Mm. They, they're, yeah, general practice and uh, essentially an opinion of the surgeon. So, hmm, hmm, very different. Um, well, look, it's it's incredibly interesting work, and I, I, I love the fact that you've gone from aircraft. You're still doing dabbling in the aircraft. Oh, yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, is today a leg day or yeah, a plane day? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Um, <laughs> Are you a leg man or a wing man? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's my name, wing. wing. Okay, what is this? I want 10%. Okay. It's <laughs> fantastic. Uh, um, it, it, there must be other applications for this sort of stuff as well. I mean, I can I can imagine this this sort of application of of looking at structural flaws, whether it's in buildings or planes or you know, in all sorts of areas. I mean, the human body is an obvious one, but but presumably there's other spaces where you can apply this as well. Well, I I do actually practice as a professional engineer as well, right? As well as doing my normal academic and uh, research. And one of my interests in professional engineering is really uh, condition monitoring of rotating machineries. Right. And we use a similar sort of methodologies to to determine whether or not a machine is um, is running as what it's supposed to be, mm. um, and what are the maintenance schedule that one should perhaps consider mm. to avoid any catastrophic failure. Mm. Look, it's great stuff. Professor Wing Chu, thanks so much for coming in and speaking to us today. Good luck with the continuation of this. I think if we could get to the point where, you know, people's recovery was monitored in real time. Yes. Well, you know, not every moment, but, you know, easily without, especially, I mean, CTs for me just says mm. many x-rays, not the best thing for your health. So if we can avoid that sort of scenario, then that would be great. Congratulations on the good work. Thank you. Thank you, Shane. Thanks. Professor Wing Chu is from the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at Monash University, working on some very interesting connections between aircraft and bone recovery. Three, triple, Now, in the studio, we have from the Hudson Research Institute, Gemma Evans. Gemma, welcome to 3RRR. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. Now, we're going to talk about periods. Yes. Uh, yes. Some people, Ewan's looking a bit uncomfortable. I okay. am not uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a biologist. <laughs> He's a biologist. Um, <laughs> Look, it holds the yuck factor, but it's, you know, one of those things that's absolutely critical for women to actually talk about yeah. between themselves. Yeah. Because until we actually understand more about how our bodies function and how periods work, you don't actually realize that what you're experiencing might be abnormal. Absolutely. And people kind of get freaked out by, going, oh, oh, it's yeah. blood, oh, it's yuck. So it's but interesting. I was, need to understand yeah, it. Yeah, I was talking to someone about this during the week and I said we were doing this and I said, to me, this falls into a similar category of mental health. It's one of those areas yes. that we just do not speak about enough. Absolutely. And in fact, many of the commercial stations, you know, it's one of the things I love about Triple R, would not touch this stuff with a barge pole because frankly, you know, people, as you say, you know, it's, oh, yeah, yeah, don't yep. want to talk about that. Yeah. And what does it affect? 53% of the population? Periods. Exactly. Exactly. Right? exactly. Um, so it's probably, you know, even if half the audience is not interested, the other half are. So. <laughs> yeah, but most of them have, you know, mothers, sisters, partners, yeah. Yeah. daughters. They should yeah. all be interested. Yeah. Now, um, 
as kids, we were all taught, us males, that these things were perfect, happened every month, no problems whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. This is... <laughs> <laughs> No woman has a, you know, no yeah, woman has a yeah. problem with it. It's fine. As we've <laughs> aged and interacted with more and more women, we've realised this isn't quite true. True. It's not true. Yeah. So now, Jimmy, you, you work in particular on some of the issues that happen with regards to periods. Yes. But let's, let's talk about some of those because, uh, again, a lot of people are just not aware of what some of these problems are. Women and men alike. And, yeah. and how they actually impact, you know, the long-term health and yeah. quality of life of women. Yeah. yeah. So what, I mean, first of all, let, well, let's, let's go back a step further. Um, why do we have periods? I mean, what's the point? Well, there's a lot of theories about why women actually menstruate. And I think one of the prevailing theories at the moment is that as humans we are very evolutionary developed Mm -hmm. so we have big brains and you know the sort of type of development we have in utero actually puts a lot of pressure on the mother Mm -hmm. Um, and the type of placenta that we have to develop to cope with those demands is very invasive. So a placenta, when it forms, has, has to actually um, sort of invade into the uterus of the mother and tap into the mother's blood supply and get all the nutrients from the mother. So it's thought to actually sort of cope with those demands that we had to develop this very, very specific type of lining of the uterus known as the endometrium. Mm-hmm. And this has to become very highly developed during a menstrual cycle so that it can restrict that development of the placenta so it doesn't overtake the mother too much. And in order to develop this very specific sort of type of uterine lining, it has to undergo a number of changes. So in theory, we've developed this very specific menstrual cycle as opposed to sort of, you know, Easter cycle that most animals actually experience to cope with the very invasive placental development required by humans to support that brain development and that long-term in utero development. Mm. I mean, it's it's a highly complex scenario, obviously. And and hence we get to some of the problems. I mean, what what sort of things can can go wrong? Um, Well... One of the main things that I'm sort of trying to investigate at the moment is something called endometriosis, which is um, a disease that isn't sort of specifically associated with menstruation, but is sort of in theory caused by menstruation. So endometriosis is a major reproductive complication, can affect women's quality of life, mm-hmm. can cause all kinds of other problems like heavy menstrual bleeding, lots of pain, um, can cause irritable bowel syndrome and you know mental health issues because women have such painful and mm. such heavy periods. Yeah. Now this in theory is caused by something called retrograde menstruation and people are like what on earth does that actually mean? Sounds like it goes back. It, yeah, it doesn't sound that's right. That's exactly what it does. Right. So basically in retrograde menstruation pieces of the period tissue, so menstrual tissue actually go back up through the fallopian tubes and enter the abdominal cavity rather oh, than coming out through the vagina. Sounds like a really bad idea. Yes. Yeah. They get stuck in the peritoneal, or the abdominal cavity and stick to the bowels, the intestines, the outside of the uterus, the bladder, and they cause massive inflammation and mm. pain and all the associated complications and consequences of this disease endometriosis. 
resources. In a repeated way too, yes. not just yes. one off. This is yep. happening every can, month just happen. when you get over it, bang, it hits you again yes. kind of thing. And yep. what we don't understand about endometriosis is really why it happens. Now, endometriosis is very, very difficult to study because we can only study it in species that have periods. And that mm. really encompasses humans yep. and some um, primates, so monkeys. Now, because of those issues, we don't really understand enough about it. We yeah. don't understand why it happens. We don't understand how it starts. We don't understand any of those issues. And what's, I mean, I, this will surprise the hell out of my colleagues here, but <laughs> when I was a PhD student, yeah. uh, I was this sort of laser fiber optic guy. Um, and I worked at the, partly, uh, with a researcher at the women's hospital. Yes. And we did uterine wall ablation therapy mm-hmm. for women. It was, it was a research project. And I was, I was the light guy. There was a light sensitive <laughs> chemical that was pumped into the uterine wall beforehand. Yep. These were women who were having hysterectomies. And, and to me, in my mind, it was still the treatment for this condition at that time was hysterectomy. I mean, which is, I mean, I was there when the surgeon was doing it. It wasn't a simple procedure. In all honesty, very little has changed. Right. So, you know, a lot of women do undergo a hysterectomy for this type of condition, for endometriosis, mm. and for other associated conditions, you know, that might happen in the uterus, like fibroids. And again, it's because we can't really study these diseases effectively, because we can only really study them in humans, that we can't really develop effective treatments. Another corollary of that is that we can't really develop effective diagnostics because humans are hard to study. Mm. I mean, getting your hands on a human and sort of, you know, doing really intensive investigation is absolutely impossible. I can't say to a human, oh, excuse me for a minute, I'm just going to put something in your vagina and have a look. You know, nobody wants to undergo that and a routine procedure <laughs> and a routine process. You know, it's one of those things that's really difficult yeah, to study. Yeah. So, um, yes, with, with things like endometriosis, we can use the contraceptive pill, which is, you know, pretty much the only effective treatment we've got. Okay. We can do hysterectomy or um, the surgeon can go in and actually individually and very, very carefully remove those pieces of endometrium that are growing inside the abdominal cavity. Wow. Now, that obviously takes a very long time, requires very, very highly skilled surgeon. And because these pieces of tissue can, you know, effectively come out again the next menstrual cycle mm. and stick, mm. women have to go undergo repeated cycles. I mean, some women have to go under 20 different surgical procedures to keep on removing these pieces of tissue. Yeah. So it's an awful disease that really affects women. And, you know, I think something that's come out this week, because um, it was International Women's Week, is that, you know, problems associated with periods and particularly, again, like focus on endometriosis, is that because they affect women every single month, mm. it affects their quality of life it affects yep. their mental Into health, health. Yep. it affects their families yeah. you know yeah. it's a it's a big problem and it affects one in ten women so so this was going to be my next question about the the numbers yeah but I mean, i've often said that you know every woman at some stage in their life will have problems with their period i mean i'm not sure how true yes. that statement is i kind of just whack that out there but <laughs> but, but it seems it seems as though this system is so complicated and goes wrong in so many cases yeah that it, it essentially is true, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, at some point in their life, <laughs> generally women will have some kind of menstrual problem, mm. whether that be something associated with endometriosis or very heavy bleeding associated with a uterine fibroid, which is a benign tumour which grows within the uterus, or just very, very heavy or prolonged bleeding. Right. Most right. women will experience that. Mm. And again, the issues of menstruation 
hard to study. Yeah. We don't really yeah. understand everything about the process of menstruation. We don't understand all the chemicals and all the signals involved yet because humans are difficult. Yeah. So now we, we only have about a minute to go, but I just wanted to quickly touch on what you're actually doing in the lab. Like what, so what's your approach to study this? They're hard to study. What are we doing? Um, so my major approach at the moment is a diagnostic test because for women with endometriosis, that's just something we just don't have very well mm. at the moment. So the only thing we can actually do to investigate whether a woman has it is surgery, a surgical procedure called laparoscopy. Right. So because of that, complexity of diagnosis women on average have it for eight to ten years before they're actually diagnosed with it now during that eight to ten years they suffer with pain heavy periods and even infertility because it can really affect how the body can prepare itself for pregnancy Hmm. so my approach at the moment is just developing a simple minimally invasive diagnostic test to actually determine if a woman has the disease or not and then hopefully we hope to develop a prognostic test which will actually tell us if a woman is likely to have recurrence of the disease so is this woman once we've operated on her gonna get this terrible disease again and Mm. can we help her sounds like a good plan jim evans from the hudson research institute thanks so much for coming in and talking about this topic we love talking periods on this show and we'll continue to do it periods take (laughs) take that commercial channels um (laughs) and it's not even lunchtime so you know i'm sure people are fine we we do need to continue the state though this has massive implications for women's mental health as well as their physical health and it's something that we need to pursue more and more so Gemma thanks so much for very talking very grateful to us. for you guys talking about it we're happy to do it <laughs> we're almost out of time um, what are you guys up to for the rest of the day nothing good you're out of time you can't tell me uh, <laughs> time travel more than you I reckon <laughs> Dr Ewan thanks so much for coming in good to see you fun as always Dr Jen See, Dr. Shane, hope your googly eye gets better soon, mate. Oh, jeez, I tell you. You know, I'm going to go home and take some naprosin. That, that's a period pain medication. It works great for eyes, folks. Don't <laughs> consult your doctor before you um, persist with that. I use it all the time. Uh, Chris, Chris KP. You just made that up. My pleasure. No, I didn't, actually. Naprosin's the main, major component in naprogesic, and that's often what you get for eye inflammation. Really? Thanks for listening to Triple R and to Einstein and Gogo. We'll chat to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au. Einstein & Gogo is presented by Squarespace, a scientific way to create a beautiful website with designer templates, an easy-to-use interface, and a free domain name. To start your free trial, go to squarespace.com. Use offer code RRR to save 10%. Squarespace, triple R sponsors.